Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS. Dear JCPS is a district-focused stakeholder advocacy group that demands accountability and transparency from JCPS through a lens of equity. Save Our Schools Kentucky is a statewide advocacy group that seeks to expose and prevent attempts to privatize our public schools, including charter schools and everything else from the ALEC playbook. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. Hello and welcome to the January 20th, 2022 episode of Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS. I'm your host, Gay Adelman. On our January 6th, 2022 program, I played for you testimonies from that day's Senate Education Committee hearing where several people testified in favor or against Senate Bill 1. Senate Bill 1 is a bill that is intended to strip local decision-making power away from site-based decision-making councils and hand it over to the superintendent of each district across the state. In particular, it focuses on principal selection power, which was granted to JCPS as superintendent last year, and now it is being made statewide, as we predicted. And it also takes curriculum selection power away from site-based decision-making councils. This is a backdoor attempt to undermine our districts that are working to provide more culturally competent and accurate teaching materials, especially around history and science. House Bill 14 and House Bill 18 are the anti-CRT bills, which is the front door attempt to stifle teachers from teaching history accurately. Senate Bill 1 takes that power away from site-based decision-making councils so that they can have the decisions made by the superintendent who is chosen by their school board members. So right-wing radical groups are working to take over school boards across our country. And JCPS has been fortunate so far in that we have been able to recognize these threats and keep them from getting elected. But with the pandemic and many people just barely surviving right now, the, and, and public access being limited uh, out of fear of the rise of COVID, especially with the Omicron variant raging currently, it's very difficult for people to make space in their lives to pay attention to what's going on in the General Assembly right now, much less object to it, protest it. So we have to be aware. We have to talk to our peers, our family members, our neighbors, and let them know that site-based decision-making councils across the state are about to have their decision-making ability stripped away in the form of uh, essentially becoming advisory only, like many of our low-performing schools were targeted and, and converted to over a decade ago. Uh, every time a school is deemed historically low-performing, 
the district, the state can come in and do an audit and strip your site-based decision-making council power away. And so many of our schools, especially in high concentrations where there's poverty and minority populations, we've seen schools have that power taken away more than a decade ago. And so if this was a solution, why isn't it working? So why are they now replicating a failed strategy across the entire state? We know the answer. It's part of an orchestrated plan to continue to dumb down our students and prevent them from learning the truth about our nation's history and the struggles of black and brown and LGBTQ and all faiths, people of all faiths, so and non-faiths. So I have pulled together some additional information for you to listen to today. House Bills 14 and 18 have yet to be assigned to a committee, so that means they are not getting any traction at the moment, but that could all change overnight. They meet, the House Education Committee meets on Tuesdays at 8 a.m., so we have to keep an eye on their agenda and see what is planned for it. There was supposed to be a meeting this past Tuesday it was moved to the afternoon because of the Martin Luther King holiday, but it was canceled at the last minute, the morning of the the scheduled meeting time. I don't think we know why. We suspect it was COVID-related, but we don't know for sure. But House Bill 63 had made it to the agenda, and that is the bill that will force armed police in all of our schools. JCPS held a community forum and express their desire to keep the police in their patrol cars and uh, patrolling multiple campuses. And now that the General Assembly is aware of this plan, they are changing their laws, adding amendments to their bills to prevent us from making local decisions again. You don't, anywhere in the state, districts do not need this legislation in order to have armed police in their schools. The bill is intended to force districts like JCPS that are listening to their community members to do something against our own knowledge of what is best for our community. These bills are overreaching, uh, insulting, egregious, and are being introduced and supported by lawmakers who have received endorsements from groups like JCTA. So something doesn't add up. We need to stay vigilant, keep paying attention, listen to what people are saying. I'm going to play for you further testimony uh, on the Senate floor regarding Senate Bill 1 after the uh, program on January 6th. The bill moved to the Senate floor. There was additional discussion, so I will play excerpts from that day as well as the JCPS board meeting that took place on January 18th where there was a dissension from the board members because they did not support the district's recommendation to relax uh, quarantine guidelines. And so the vote was four to three in opposition of the proposal. Our three African-American board members voted against it, as well as Chris Cobb. Um, 
I think that that right there tells you a story. The black members of our community representing, uh, who were elected by districts that have higher concentrations of our black and brown populations who are at a greater risk because of COVID, not just death, but illness and long-term effects. They voted against relaxing the guidelines, but the three white board members that reflect East and South Jefferson County voted in favor. So this is a classic example of catering to the whims, trying to cater, our board members trying to cater to the whims and needs of uh, a more privileged population. And I'm glad to see that the measure failed because it's important that we keep our children safe and do everything possible to keep our children safe. And the pandemic is raging. Now is not the time to be, re to be relaxing guidelines. And another thing I want you to be aware of is last year, the legislature passed language that forces teacher to be, teachers to be in person when they are teaching NTI. So they still have to go to school and risk exposure and all of that so that they can be monitored more closely, I guess, by the, the uh, overlords of our school system. But also I think it's because lawmakers saw what was happening across the country where teachers were showing up at their state capitals and teaching remotely from the steps in the cold to express their disdain and, and opposition in protest of horrendous laws that are being passed during this crisis and I I'm confident that the reason they added this language to their bill last year was to prevent our local our teachers in Kentucky from doing the same thing so again we have to watch their actions and stay alert for what they're attempting to prepare for and accomplish and then call it out when we see it because they're not operating ethically, honestly, or with empathy. And there needs to be, people need to be investigated for the roles that they're playing. What did they know and when did they know it? Because a line has been drawn. A line has been drawn and you are either on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. And if you haven't come over to the right side of history now, there needs to be some investigation as to what your motivation is. What is your motivation to not support racial equity in our public school systems, especially in light of everything that is happening at the national level, across this country, and in our own district? I'll begin with floor testimonies for Senate Bill 1. There we go, Mr. President. I move that Senate Bill 1 be taken from its place in the orders of the day, read for the third time by title only, and placed upon its passage. Mr. Clerk, would you please report Senate Bill 1. Senate Bill 1, an act relating to school councils. Senator Scott. I yield to the Senator from Boone for action on the bill. It's an honor for me today to stand in this chamber and to present to you uh, Senate Bill 1. I want to give a little bit of background about uh, Senate Bill 1 before we get into the meat of the bill. It has to do with school governance. About eight years ago, 
it came to my attention through multiple sources, some of them very close to me, that when you looked at our school governance system, we had a, I would call it dysfunctional school governance system that was kind of in conflict with, with itself and was a source of a lot of confusion between all the stakeholders, but especially the parents. So I drafted a bill to put the authority of what we do in our school systems with the citizens of that community. And to do that, we have kind of an interesting convoluted system here in Kentucky where we've delegated substantial authority to something that is called a site-based council. And unless you're intimately involved with the school system, it amazes most people don't even know what a site-based council is. But they have a lot of power here in Kentucky. And there's a lot of wonderful people, some of them sitting here in this chamber that either have served on site-based councils or intimately involved with them. But the problem with the site-based council is, is that it doesn't answer to the entire community. It only answers to a select number of people. And I think it's important for the members of this chamber and the public to realize that when this bill was created and when, when Chairman uh, Wise first let me have hearings on this bill some seven years ago, there was not the controversy around curriculum and in our schools that we see today since COVID. We had hearings all over the state. Max Wise, or I'm sorry for violating the rules. Uh, the chairman was very generous in airing this out. We had, we had vigorous debate and we had all stakeholders involved. Some of them very, very much opposed. Now, this chamber has passed this, the contents of Senate bill number one, Many times, I'm thinking four or five times we've passed this bill. In fact, uh, Louisville passed a version of it two years ago um, that we did, and we couldn't get it passed statewide. Um, because, and when we, uh, we, we'd get it passed in this chamber, but we couldn't get it passed in the other chamber. So I'm hopeful that with leadership's uh, vision to make this Senate Bill 1, that we'll be able to make this law uh, this session. Since this bill was um, first uh, founded or, or uh, seven years ago, we've had a lot of controversy around school curriculum, and it's made the urgency of this bill even more so. And I'm not here today to push one curriculum or push another curriculum or say this should be banned or that should be banned or we should promote this or we should promote that, because I don't think that's my role. I think even when I disagree, those decisions made to be not by us, but our elected school boards. So that's what this bill does. It just varies, very simple bill really. It puts the ultimate decision of curriculum and principal hiring in the hands of the person who works for the school board, the superintendent. Now, keep in mind the school board hires the superintendent, they can fire the superintendent, they evaluate the superintendent. I think it's the perfect answer to this curriculum debate because curriculum debates can be so emotional and people can descend on things very emotional. 
But this ultimately puts these important decisions in the hands of the people. But there's kind of a cooling off period, a cooling off period, because the superintendent who they hire then has to absorb this and make recommendations. But at the end of the day, if he or she doesn't reflect the wishes of that community, they get someone who does. So I think it's the perfect, um, the perfect solution. Principal hiring, again, some states or parts of the states have already done this, is also, if you've ever been around a school, you know the most important thing to a school's success is the principal. And we have some great principals, but we also have some horror stories here in Kentucky where we didn't have good principals and there was nothing the community could do about it. So I urge all members of the chamber to vote for this important piece of legislation. And in closing, I'll just say this also. It's not only the most important thing we do, but it's also the most expensive thing we do. So we need to make sure the people, not just certain people, but all the people have a say in our school governance. Thank you. Amendment that has been filed to Senate Bill 1. Uh, yes, Mr. President, can I have permission to speak to the amendment? Uh, it's not before the body yet. Okay. Are you yielding for the purpose? I will yield to the uh, Senator from Fayette. Jefferson 33. Jefferson 33, excuse me, Mr. President. Excuse me, Senator from Jefferson 33. Senator from Jefferson 33. Thank you, Mr. President. I understand that Saturday is a unusual time for us to meet. And I forgive the Senator for referring to me as uh, representing Fayette County. I have stated publicly that I have, I'm ambivalent about Senate Bill 1. But I think it's, we also want to be clear that site-based councils, this is, a, this is a significant change from the Kentucky Education Reform Act and how it was set up and the purposes of bringing community into the process. And I stand because I know of no perfection in that process. But I do know of significant input, involvement, and engagement of parents, teachers, and administrators across the board in terms of how these site-based decision-making councils have done their work. I recognize also the other side of that coin, particularly when we deal with issues of diversity, that there's been some inconsistency because of the very nature of how decisions are made and the political aspects of decision making even at uh, various of these uh, school sites. But I understand there's no perfection. I'm concerned also about the decision making of superintendents in the process. Uh, I'm even concerned about the decision making of school boards depending upon their history and their cultural background and the biases and perspectives they bring to the table, because we all bring them to the table. There's no question about that. So when we deal with questions regarding textbooks and who's going to be the chief administrator of a school, that sort of thing, I worry that we ignore the fact that that history impacts our decision making. 
every time we open our mouths, particularly when it deals with issues of race. Senate Floor Amendment 2 simply says that the superintendent shall ensure that the curriculum, textbooks, and instructional materials are culturally responsive based on the population of the school district. And it also says that the superintendent shall take into consideration the diverse makeup of the school district and school population when filling uh, vacancies. This is very consistent with Senate Bill 1. And since they're making these kinds of decisions and given our history, as I've spoken to earlier, I think this is a very reasonable uh, floor amendment, and I move adoption. Matter for the body is adoption of Senate floor amendment number two. Boone, you wish to comment on the floor amendment? Uh, uh, yes, I do. Um, Senator Boone. I just want to uh, say, as the bill sponsor, I consider this an unfriendly amendment. Any other members seeking recognition for the purpose of question or discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor of Senate Floor Amendment Number Two, vote aye. aye. Those opposed, vote no. No. Noes have it. Senate Floor Amendment Number Two is defeated. Senator from Boone, do you have a motion on the bill? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. At this time, I uh, wish to uh, move for passage of uh, Senate Bill One. Carter. The way it is now, when that school board, uh, uh, when the school council, you know, it's kind of tailor-made, it's tailor-made for that school, implemented by that principal. Do you envision the board policy to be just one big umbrella for all the school, respective schools to operate under, or do you uh, anticipate the board to do one for each school like the council does now. Senator from Boone. Well, the, uh, thank you, um, and thank you for that question. Um, the idea behind this legislation is that the board would make that uh, determination uh, in, in con with, along with the superintendent. Um, I know that um, one of the problems and one of the reasons why this legislation came forward, and I didn't really bring it up, but it is a big issue, is it in large school systems, uh, in fact, I talked to our caucus chair uh, before we came on the floor about this, in large school systems like Louisville, uh, Boone County, uh, Lexington, there's a problem with alignment where you have uh, different curriculum, since the uh, curriculum is left up to, to right now to the uh, site-based council, you'll have one school using one curriculum, another school using another curriculum. Uh, this has been a big problem in my district, so when a uh, student goes from a middle school to a high school, they might have to switch, let's say, their uh, reading curriculum to a different one. So this would leave that decision with the district. And quite frankly, uh, it might be different for different districts. This, this wouldn't be a problem in a very small district where uh, you just have maybe a, a one elementary school and a middle school and a high school, but in a district like uh, an urban district, it is a problem. So I would say whatever fits the school district, and that decision is not up to the bill sponsor, up to us, it's up to that locally elected school board. Senator Rocky Adams. Senator from Jefferson 36, please cast your vote and then explain. Thank you, Mr. President. I'd like to explain my I vote. Please proceed. Um, this legislation is uh, very appealing to me. We did this two years ago in Jefferson County, and I remember sitting in a committee room, packed committee room, where everybody 
was um, convinced that this was the demise of the influence of the SBDMs. And in fact, um, that criticism never came true. In fact, this has worked excellent in Jefferson County, and I look forward to it working excellent in um, all of the districts across the Commonwealth. But I have also been made aware by many in my district and others that the curriculum piece does cause concern and it perhaps bring, brings in politics to the way that teachers teach content. So I also want to make sure that I pledge to those people who are concerned that I will be cognizant and watchful of that dynamic. But the truth is, in Jefferson County in particular, we have many different curriculums across, uh, across our school system. We have 139 schools. Take the elementary schools, for example. We have some kids that move addresses, sometimes two and three and four times in Jefferson County, and they go to several different elementary schools. And when they are in those elementary schools, they have different curriculums. The reading curriculum at Farmer is different than the reading curriculum at Low Elementary. So I think that I'm um, hopeful that this legislation will start to streamline those curriculums for those students that have to move to different schools, particularly in Jefferson County. So thank you, Mr. President. Senator Smith. Senator from Perry, please cast your vote, then explain. Yeah, Mr. President, I rise to explain my, my no vote. Uh, and I will say I don't do that easily. Uh, Senator Boone understands this issue as much as anybody in this room. He's personally dedicated a, a large part of his life to serving inside the school system and has the children's best interests at heart, uh, which is, can go unchallenged. Uh, but he said earlier that many districts are very different. And, and in Eastern Kentucky, fortunately right now, and it's not always been the case. I have a fantastic group of superintendents and school board members that are very active, some of the best probably I've ever had. Uh, but there's also a concern uh, in my district where families and teachers feel like because of this legislation, they're going to be excluded or they're not going to be as involved as they were before. Uh, I've been assured by uh, the Senator for Boone that's not the case, but nonetheless, as I read the language, it does look like there's going to be a shift in that, and that concerns me. You know, and I, I promise I'd be brief because I know we're short on time. But if you watch around this country and watch your TV, and I try not to because it, it's, it's depressing a lot of times, but I've seen some, some cases where some school districts have gotten completely off the reservation, if you will, on some of the curriculum that they've got that really it, it, I find is shocking sometimes. And if you watch in these public meetings, uh, it is the, the parents they come up to the microphone that say the things that I most agree with. They're the ones that are taking this battle straight into the public meeting, straight into the school board, and making their voices heard. And I think that's what makes the system work. And I don't want to ever cast a vote here that makes any of my teachers or any of my parents at home feel like that they're not wanted in there. Matter of fact, right now, we are probably at one of the greatest points where we need as much parent uh, input and, and activity in our school with our children in my lifetime. And so we have had this model before 1990, and we've seen some of the stuff that's come out of Eastern Kentucky. Uh, so I encourage us to, to be cautious with it. This is going to pass, obviously, and there's a lot of really good work in this bill. Uh, and I do think when the House maybe tweaks it and makes some more changes to it, uh, I could have gone along with us adding more members. If we were able to add some more members to it, I think that would have given me a level of comfort. Uh, but I appreciate the work. Uh, and respect my
my superintendents and my school board members, they do a job that honestly I wouldn't do. They're, they really carry a tough burden. Uh, but I also have to stand here for my teachers and parents who are bewildered at what's going on and really uh, want to feel involved and, and I want them to know that I need them there. Thank you, Mr. President. Senator from Anderson, please cast your vote and then explain. Explain my I vote, Mr. President. Please proceed. This is one of those situations where we need to get past the 50% mark on what the right vote is because there's a few guiding principles that I take when I'm making these votes. One of my priorities is that we have got to get a better aligned chain of command and organization in our school systems because there seems to be a lot of dysfunction and I think that friction in the arrangement of things just makes people spend a lot of staff time and resources not on educating our children but on internal combustion. So the other factor is we have got to get more parent voice and prioritization to parents who can have a voice on what needs to be happening at that local level. But I also would bring up that local school boards need to be at the top of that chain of command. And the Constitution, Section 183 says that the General Assembly has to provide for an efficient system of common schools throughout the state. That is the vision we're handed. That's the mandate we have here to make sure everything is as equal as possible all over the state. And having three billion different councils all not talking to each other, I find non-efficient and not common. And so my view on this bill, while it seems to me perhaps only maybe half of a bill, what we really need, I think more is needed. But I also feel like a lot of people are very focused on this issue. And our people being very focused on this issue makes us be very focused on this issue. And so I can cast an I vote today, even with half a bill in place. I think the rest, we can either take a little bit of time and see how it goes and then come back and work on it some more. Or perhaps, as others have mentioned, the House has some more ideas. But I will cast an I vote today and hope that we can make some kind of change, because change is definitely needed in some of these areas to help move the ball forward and stay constitutional. Senator Storm. Senator Morrow, please cast your vote and then explain. Mr. President, I'd vote no. And very briefly, I would like to echo the comments from the Senator from Perry. Again, uh, I think we have excellent superintendents and school boards in our area. And I myself have served as a parent voice on the site-based, actually school-based decision-making council in my county. I've had a wonderful experience with that during my service there. And again, I want to be someone that's a voice for the parents. I want uh, parental uh, say on their students' education, and therefore, I vote no. Senator Webb. Senator from Carter, please cast your vote and then explain. Explain my no vote, Mr. President. Please proceed. Uh, I won't repeat, be repetitive in some of the concerns that I raised during the debate. Uh, however, you know, I do feel like there's three areas that politics have no place, and that is education, health care, and justice. I don't think it's going to take politics out of the bill. I think it perhaps could put more in it. Uh, and I'm concerned about that. I, I look forward uh, to see if the House will amend and send it back. But this time I vote no. Senator Yates. Senator from Jefferson 37, please cast your vote and then explain. 
explain my no vote, Mr. President. Please proceed. Mr. President, reading the bill, um, I think there's a lot of good work that's went into it. Um, I do stand and vote no today uh, simply because of the one-size-fits-all approach that I think that is being laid down in a very diverse set of school districts. Uh, Jefferson County, very, very different than, than other counties. Seeing no other members seeking recognition to cast change or explain their vote, there being 25 yay, 9 nay, Senate Bill 1 is passed. You are listening to Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS. I'm your host, Gay Adelman. You can listen to replays of our program on SoundCloud under the Forward Radio channel with Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS playlist. The audio recordings you are listening today are from, from the Senate floor where they were discussing Senate Bill 1. We now continue with the most recent JCPS school board meeting. I've got a couple questions that I've been asked by parents and teachers. Um, so if it is a remote learning day, do those teachers still report to the building? Yes, they would. By, by uh, statute, it's like NTI. They would have the only, the only exception would be, and I'll say this just so everyone knows, um, we do have weather coming in later this week. If we change to an NTI weather day, it still counts as one of our 10 NTI days, but an NTI weather day allows staff to teach from home. Who call an NTI weather day, they're allowed to stay home. NTI COVID days, they must go to their work location. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, uh, moving next to a uh, board member, uh, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Chair Porter. Um, so uh, I guess I think this is probably a question for Eva, but um, if we're not contact tracing except in early childhood, does that mean that, I assume that means that if, a, for instance, my child is exposed to COVID at school, they won't notify me. Like, I'll never know that, will I? You will. It, it, there'll be a letter that goes home to every class. So when there's a student in a classroom that has COVID, there'll be a notice go home to parents. But instead of the school-wide notice, the way it's been, it'll be per class. And that will give them instructions and um, monitor for symptoms, that kind of thing. So what, does, what are we changing then when we say no contact tracing? Really, it is to um, for the schools to have to go look for those kids that were within three feet for 15 minutes or longer, notification to go to those parents, giving them the option for tests to stay. Um, those things would, would not be in place for those situations. So if my kid is exposed to somebody not in his class, he would not, uh, which you know really shouldn't happen, uh, but I would not be notified. You would if, so at the elementary level, it's going to be more, you know, on a smaller, at the, at the middle and high school level, level where they change classes, that notice is going to have to go home to the classes that student is in. But again, we're dependent upon, if a kid tells their mom at seven in the morning before school, hey, I have a headache, and the mom sends them to school with a little Tylenol or something uh, before administered before school, um, you know, we don't really have any way of knowing that that person's experiencing symptoms, do we? 
no, we don't. And it's been that way, really. We've had children come to school who have COVID. And, um, you know, we've been in that same sort of situation. The, the good part about the mitigation measures is prior to Omicron, we never had a positivity rate above two. And right. so, you know, we, we were able to, even though, yes, there are some situations that have fallen through the cracks overall, um, you know, people have, have been following those guidelines. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, that to me, it, it's great that what we're doing seems to be working pretty well, which just makes me more convinced that we should keep doing what we're doing if it's working so well. Um, you know, I, Ms. Porter, I, I may have more comments in a second, but I just want to wrap up my time now by saying, I think, you know, all we're, all we're doing here is lowering the bar. I mean, this is like saying, you know, oh, you can't get an A. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to make an 80% an A, um, you know, because we can't have school with 10 day quarantine. So you know what? Nothing has changed about COVID. Nothing has changed about the risk factors. Nothing has changed, but we know we can't have school with 10 days as much as we want. So we're just going to make it easier and send people to school that may still be symptomatic. Um, and I understand why you brought this forward, Dr. Polio. It falls in line with what, you know, the procedure you've used in the past. But we, at this point, we've got to decouple, I think, from CDC and state guidance. I mean, those are, you know, those are political appointees that are making uh, these uh, recommendations, um, you know, at the behest of uh, politicians. You know, uh, what we're doing now is working. Um, you know, and if there's too much COVID in the community to have school, there's too much COVID in the community to have school. There's nothing that a school system can do about that. And other parts of this community have got to step up and take some responsibility for mitigating COVID. Uh, thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Board Member Marshall. Uh, thank you, Chair Porter. I'll jump into my few questions that I have. Um, so first is some make sure that I'm getting this correct. Based on new guidelines, if someone, a student, staff, teacher, tests positive for COVID, they have to quarantine and isolate for five days, and then they are able to return back to the school building without having a negative test. Is that correct? If they're asymptomatic, that is correct. So if they are still experiencing symptoms, then they are still able to isolate for as long as it takes to get rid of those symptoms? That is correct, up to 10 days. Okay, so I think we know, because we've been through this for two years now, that even people that are asymptomatic can still spread the virus. So some of my concerns are around uh, students at lunchtime. Are we given any special instruction to help schools deal with the kid who returns back after five days, says I'm asymptomatic, no symptoms. Um, we know based on what we've been told uh, and learned about this virus that that person uh, is more than likely still contagious. Are we helping schools with anything for how they ought to deal with their kid when they have to have their mask off, eating lunch, or uh, even athletes that are going to go to practice? Are we dealing with any of those circumstances? Um, those are good questions, Mr. Marshall. I'll let Eva, do you want to weigh in on that? 
So those are some uh, specific questions that were asked of the CDC and really at the state. And the objective is to, for meal times in particular, to make sure that students are six feet apart when they're unmasked who are in that circumstance. Um, as far as athletes go, because that's a group that there would still be contact tracing. So those athletes, when that player returns, um, there, there isn't a provision for the player to not be masked. And so KHSAA is supposed to be giving some additional guidance on that. But that mask requirement is for anybody who comes back after five days um, before that 10-day that period. Does that make sense? So that mitigation strategy still has to be in place for them to be able to have that shortened quarantine. Okay. And then in regards to our teachers and our other staff members, uh, after five days, you know, if they're still uh, not feeling up to return to work, uh, how are we going to deal with those situations? Um, I mean, are we playing detective and saying, oh, you're not really symptomatic, you're just saying you are. Are we going to be in a situation where we're forcing, you know, people to come back into the building earlier than when they're ready? We shouldn't uh, be. No, we will not do that. I mean, uh, it will just be a matter of them reporting as symptomatic. Okay. And I know we've had conversations with our union partners. Um, can we share any of the main concerns that our union partners had and uh, how we were able to rectify those concerns to get them on board with this? Uh, the main concern today was that the screener, the employee screener was still taking place, which it is, you know, we reiterated that there are no other changes to our guidance other than the ones I just laid out to you. So employees will still have to screen upon entrance into their work site. I think that was the main concern. Other than that, it seemed once we um, solidified that, that um, um, their questions were answered. Okay. And any other uh, information that we received from the health department, you know, in, in regards to, you know, current community spread and, um, how this will either help or do they have some concerns that this might, you know, stretch uh, our positivity rate and cause it to climb, anything of that nature? I'll say this. I have not gotten any concerns from the three levels. And obviously I didn't have conversations with the CDC, but from the state health department to the local health department, our team did not um, hear any concerns. Eva, did you, and she would be the one to address whether she heard any concerns. So, I mean, I will start that by saying, which, you know, as I've told Dr. Polio, change makes me incredibly nervous because we're changing our processes. And when, we, when we're in a good place, we're changing our processes. But I trust that, they, that they're doing this based on the data that they have and that this is, this is um, a good move for us. But I meet with them every week and we look at our data and we look at our data compared to, to their data and, um, discuss the, the measures that we have in place. So without question, I know if, if those numbers start to go off, again, I'll say these, these monitoring systems that we have in place are just what, what we're gonna have to pay particular attention to to see if this is having an adverse effect on our families and community. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that you said it, I, I, we have worked extremely hard and in many cases got in ahead of the game on some mitigation efforts and the things we're doing are working 
you know, my biggest concern with this is shortening this quarantine and isolation time is we're going to have to take people's word on whether or not they really are ready to come back if they have symptoms or if they don't. Um, and it could put additional stresses on staff and those in the building. And personally, I haven't seen, you know, when we made these other decisions, it seemed that the decisions being made were in line with what the scientific community was saying about the virus. I just don't feel that's the case this time. Uh, I feel like this was made for other reasons. Um, and frankly, I, I just don't know uh, if the information is there for me personally to feel confident. You know, even as a parent, if I know that I'm sending my kid to school and that there could be someone in the in the classroom with them that is positive. And we already know that that's probably the case because we're not catching every single case of COVID in our buildings as is. So personally, to put more positive cases that we do know into the building with those we don't, um, I, I'm just not confident that, you know, it's going to get the results that we need and really give our children what they need at the end of the day. So I appreciate it, Chair Porter, that is my time. Thank you, Board Member Marshall. Uh, Board Member Craig, if you have any questions or comments, please. I'm not able to share comments at the moment. I am comfortable record with the recommendation and was able to get my questions asked directly from staff. Uh, thank you, Chair Porter. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions to ask. Uh, we have mentioned uh, in our conversation more than board more than one board member about filling out this health screener daily. How do we know people are doing that? Everybody is completing that form. What what is our proof that that is being taken care of for all staff members? How do we know that? Eva or Dr. Greenweb, if you would like to address that. I, you know, I can start. So the screener, every uh, supervisor has the ability to to look at a report um, and see. Now, their biggest frustration often is that it's um, the system updates from Munis, so people may change locations and so on. But the main point of the screener, there are some places too where they have elect. Um, paper versions for people to fill out when they come in. But all staff have been notified and reminded, communication sends out lots of reminders about doing that daily health screener and to contact health services if they have symptoms. So there, how do we know that that is truly happening? Because I can say that I'm going to do it and not do it. It's kind of, I wanna kind of go back to what board member Marshall was saying. We're putting uh, a lot of trust uh, for folks. So how do we monitor to know how many people and where these people are located that are filling out that screener every day? I think that's very critical for us to know. That's a concern. I will say that I've gotten emails and texts about that. So we, again, people are very anxious about some of the, the what we're allowing people to do or not do. Dr. Chris, I'll turn it back to you for another five minutes, sir. Thank you, Chair Porter. I, my, I forgot to ask my most basic question initially, which was, why are we considering this? What, what's wrong with what we're currently doing? Well, I've just said, uh, Dr. Cole, from the very beginning, um, that you know we had a process when the CDC made changes to their at-school guidance, that we then followed the Kentucky State Health guidance. Um, you know, we did not move quickly when that happened because we wanted to bring it to you all and discuss it with you. But that is the state guidance that we've worked under from the very beginning and in line with Metro Health. 
um, and those experts, you know, we want to continue our guidance in line with those. We've done that from the very beginning. Uh, so that's why I'm bringing this. I, you know, there are, we have gone beyond what the state has required before, you know, particularly with uh, when we got out in front of universal masking, you know, which was not something that was required at the time. Um, so, you know, there is a precedent for going beyond what the state has said. And I think that we've seen really good results um, from doing that. So I'm, I'm hesitant to, to alter course when there, you know, isn't a really good reason. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, I, what I heard was, well, the state, the state says, this, so therefore we are going to do this. I mean, that's not, to me, that doesn't really answer the question of why. And, you know, in the absence of a, of a clear answer to the question of why, I'm inclined to, I don't see why we would change what we're doing now, which appears to be working. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of if it's not broken, don't fix it. And what I heard, um, and Eva, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but what I heard you say is that it makes me nervous when we change our processes when we're getting good results. So um, again, I don't understand why we, we, we would change our processes when we're getting good results. Um, you know, the, to Mr. Marshall's point, um, you know, there's, we're relying upon hundreds of thousands of people in this community. If we adopt these measures, we're relying on them to be vigilant and to be accurate in determining if they're still at risk of tra transmitting COVID. And, you know, that level of subjective judgment we've proven as a city and country cannot be relied on. I mean, that's why we're in the situation we are now is because we've just kind of left it up to individuals to, to tell us, you know, and trusted their judgment that, oh, you know, I'm safe, I'm doing this. Um, and that's, that's why we are, that's why we are where we are now. There's a really easy way to check up on this subjective judgment, test to return, test to stay. Um, you know, uh, I, so I, I'm, again, I'm just mystified why we would think about not requiring that uh, when it's already in place. It's very convenient to do. Um, it's been working and it's allowed us to stay in-person school uh, for most of the year, even with very high rates of COVID. So, you know, I, I don't think this plan gives us the best chance to stay in school in person for that reason. Um, the uh, other things that I, you know, to be able to support this, I would have to see are some kind of, uh, re again, requiring a negative test and requiring a booster and requi requiring a higher quality mask. Um, you know, so those aren't a part of it. So I, again, I. I can't support it. You know, at the I'm first and foremost, I'm 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 coming at this as a parent. You know, as I as my wife and I were thinking about what we were going to do today if um, if we had not been in NTI, um, you know, we were seriously considering just keeping our child home, and we still are um, when we return to normal schooling because we know that these procedures are going to mean that we have more people in school with COVID. Um, and co I mean, COVID is serious. I mean, it's, you know, there's article in Scientific American I was just reading 
about how a tsunami of disability is coming because of long COVID. Kids do not appear to be at less risk for long COVID than adults do. Um, they appear to be at less risk for acute illness that could uh, kill them quickly, but not for debilitating long COVID. So um, to me, this is, um, you know, I think these recommendations are unnecessary. Um, I think they're, I think they're reckless, um, frankly. And as a parent, first and foremost, I just can't support sending my kid to a school system that has these procedures. I'm finished and you're muted. Ms. Okay, Gordon. thank you. Any other board members have any uh, comments or questions before I call for the vote? Board member Marshall. A really quickly, Chair Porter, just a point of clarification. So on this vote, uh, it seems to be two things here with change to the guidelines and then granting Dr. Polio with the power to assign remote days. Is that correct? I believe that's correct, but it's, it's written up as uh, the way the motion is written is just basically to motion to approve the uh, revised JCPS COVID-19 school operations plan. So it doesn't spell that out the two items specifically, but we can ask Kevin Brown if we need to spell it out specifically. If we, if is that your question, uh, yes, Marshall? I would like for. Uh, Kevin Brown to speak to that, please. Uh, I think the um, the intent was to have those together because I believe, and Amy Dennis, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we did incorporate reference to the um, remote instruction in the operation plan. Is that correct? That's correct. So you can take a motion that would do both of those things. The board can also consider separate motions um, if if one motion fails and there's a desire for another part of the plan to stay in stay in place while another part is not approved, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I appreciate that. So uh, I, I'll let the vote proceed at this time, but uh, depending on that outcome, uh, I may offer a motion at that time. Okay, thank you, Board Member Marshall. And one question, uh, Dr. Polio, you said you had met with the union representatives and you all answered questions. Are they moving forward with us? Are they working? Are they working with us? Or are they are there concerns that will cause them to not work with us? Yes or no, moving forward. I know you said you met with them today, you answered questions. They have supported everything up to this point. So is there support from the union representatives today after your meeting? Just a yes or no question. All indications were yes, they are supportive. Okay, thank you. Okay, any other, uh, Dr. Chris, I see your hand up. I, I was just gonna, I prefer that we consider this as two separate motions um, and take the motion to approve the remote instruction days separately. Um, Cause I'm, I'm certainly for that and I don't wanna presume, but I don't, I don't see a lot of resistance to that particular piece of it. Okay, Ms. Duncan, I see your hand up. Yes, I, I move that we approve the new guidance that we've received from the CDC and the state uh, and Department of Health and KDE. I second that, Ms. Porter. And KDE, and the second came from? James Craig. James Craig. 
So we have a motion and a second. Any discussion before I call for the vote? Hearing none, um, we'll start with board member McIntosh for this particular motion. I know we've changed the wording a couple of times, so I just want to be very clear on, on how I'm voting. Um, I do support adopting the, the recommendations from the medical professionals, so yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Shule. Uh, no, no ma'am. Okay, uh, Ms. Duncan. Yes. Okay, board member Marshall. No. Thank you. Board member Craig. Uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, board member Dr. Chris. No. Did you say no? No. Okay, thank you. And so uh, Diane Porter, I vote no because it's dangerous i think for the district that i represent so currently we have uh one two three we have four no votes and three yes votes votes so the motion does not pass to move forward with reducing the days from 10 to 5. and um chair Kevin, Porter, just, i'm sorry and chair Porter, to clarify just for those watching everything remains the status quo so if um what you were voting on was to vote no to the new recommendations that was voted down. And so the, the current plan that's in place, um, the school operations plan stays in effect, just like it was in operation today in schools um, across the district. And then the only thing the board did take action on was approving the remote, uh, the ability for the superintendent to utilize state uh, providing remote instruction. I just wanted to clarify that since there may be some confusion for those watching. Thank you for making it clear for everybody. And thank you, Angie, for making it clear in the, in the minutes so people are, are clear as to what we have done this evening. Um, I thank you for your comments. I thank you for your vote. Uh, this is, uh, has been an important conversation for the board to move forward on and to have the conversation. So I appreciate your time and effort this evening. You've been listening to Save Our Schools with Dear JCPS. I hope you enjoyed today's program. You can catch replays of today's show on SoundCloud under the Forward Radio channel with the Save Our Schools Dear JCPS playlist. General Assembly continues until April 14th. Stay vigilant. The proceeding is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com.